Welcome to the Humans of Hospitality podcast. I know so many of you listening to this show love your local bar, your local restaurant, maybe your local hotel, and have so many fond memories of time in hospitality businesses. This is the podcast where we get to chat to the human beings behind the scenes of that industry. Maybe the chefs or the bakers or the coffee roasters or the gin distillers or the craft brewers or the entrepreneurs, but all doing an amazing job of making sure that hospitality stays interesting and the big dull formulaic brands do not take over our high street please enjoy the show In this week's episode, I am talking to Tom Foote from The Open Air Dairy, and this was probably one of my favourite episodes to record, partly because I was stood in the middle of a beautiful Dorset field on a summer's day, surrounded by some 800 and 50 cows, making it an exceptionally memorable experience. Now, Tom Foote and Neil Grigg are far too humble to say this, but in building up their open-air dairy, they've become true pioneers in their industry. Like many tenant farmers, they didn't have hundreds of thousands of pounds to build conventional sheds and modern indoor milking systems. So when a fantastic farm came their way, they had to think outside the box. Or as one observer put it, they took the box, ripped it up, and completely threw it away. Inspired by by a farmer in the 1920s, they've transformed second-hand trailers and bales into modern milking parlours. Instead of herding their cattle to a shed every day, they take the sheds directly to the cows. Everything is really done in the open air, all year round. And what might have started as a cost-saving exercise, and the figures will astound you, has thrown up many, many more benefits. Great tasting milk, family-friendly working hours, cows that live 12 to 13 years instead of around three when intensively farmed, and super relaxed cattle. I should know a few of them enjoyed rubbing themselves against me as I recorded this conversation with Tom. Enjoy my nervousness as I work out whether they are bulls or heifers. Tom, thank you so much for saying yes and agreeing to do this podcast. Nice to meet you. And um, likewise. So, um, people who listen to this podcast regularly will be used to me kind of going wow I'm in this amazing part of the earth because I tend to go all over the place some of them I've done in London but lots I end up being in the country Uh, this is probably the most fascinating so uh, can you just explain to people listening where on earth we are please Um, well we're just outside Little Breedy which is uh, where the farm's based Uh, we're sitting on some chalk downland uh, but all grass um, overlooking a field with 850 cows in it. <laughs> you say overlooking a field with 850 cows. There's actually a cow sniffing my foot yes. uh, as I'm talking. So, so I would say that we're immersed uh, in a field, which is probably normal for you in your day-to-day life. But literally, I am surrounded by 800-odd cows uh, a couple of foot away. Yes, yes. We're in the middle of the cows. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> I stand corrected. Balanced on the front of a Land Rover. Uh, I al- almost feel like a farmer. So this is, uh, I don't how many fields do you have? Just explain a little bit about the space we've got here. Uh, we've got, I think, about 40 fields on the farm. And those fields are, are, are subdivided. Um, and we'll, we'll go into a new, new paddock every day. So the cows are getting fresh grass. Actually, they're getting fresh grass four times a day. Um, and then we'll move the milking parlours with the cows to a next field each day. Okay. Um, 
and we sort of we go around the farm like a clock face really from one paddock to the next That's so amazing. we'll be back in this field in a month's time amazing and it's always like this sort of nice uh, cumulus white fluffy clouds blue sky uh, bright green glass and happy cows yeah yeah that's right yeah, yeah. <laughs> no it's i mean it is you know, it's today is idyllic you it know is, the sun is shining it is, it is absolutely it's very warm um, perfect. but we have a lot of snow well i say we've we've had a lot of snow over the last really? two years so we're milking in the snow and the rain um, and we get a bit of mud, but there's more good days than bad. We probably have a couple of tough weeks um, in December and a couple of tough weeks in March. Okay. Um, but we're applying sun cream when we're milking. <laughs> yeah, well, it's incredible. And we'll regularly. come into the details as to why what you do is so different and how literally you are uh, in the fields uh, all year and how that compares to traditional farming. Um, but I want to go back a little bit before we get into the detail of what you do now. I just want to find out, you know, what, what, what got you into farming? Have you been doing this from a lad? Are you from a family of farmers? Um, yes, a, a family farm. Um, I, yeah, so I was brought up on a farm with my father, um, my uncle and cousins and grandparents. Um, so I've never really known anything different. Um, I always wanted to get into farming. Um, it's a job and it's a lifestyle as well. Um, and so that's what I did. You know, unfortunately, my father died when I was 17. Um, so I was then farming with my uncle and cousins and one of my brothers. Um, and yeah, that was that was fairly good for. Or maybe the first um, twenty years of my farming career, and um, and then sadly, you know, as, as a family farms sort of split up, there's a bit of a family fallout, and myself and my family, my mother, um, left left the family farm, which I guess we'd been there since 1870, I think. Wow. Um, so it was a bit upsetting at the time, um, but then we said, right, we let's. What are we going to do next? And um, I went away to college at in Devon, you know, an agricultural college. And there I met my now business partner. Um, we met on day one. And um, this is Neil. Yeah. This is Neil. Yeah. Mm. Neil Grigg. Um, so we, we met at college. We became sort of best mates. Um, from there on, we're at college together for two years. We then went off in our separate directions. I went back to the family farm and Neil uh, went back to his family farm. He then decided to retrain and actually got at a, qualified as a chartered accountant and went into accounting as well as farming. So he was part-time accounting and part-time farming. And then in 2009, with sort of uh, our family split up, Neil was looking to get into dairy farming and said, well, maybe, you know, why don't we look at trying to go dairy farming together? And I was part of a sort of in intensive farming business previously and so we looked at more of an extensive um, farming cows out outside all year round grazing grass um, so we looked at opportunities from Hampshire to Gloucester and down to Cornwall you know from 2009 to 2011 and then fortunately after sort of 10 different sort of failed opportunities um, or you know we came second or didn't have the, the right capital to go and take on a tenancy we we were fortunate enough to get this tenancy from Sir Philip Williams on the Bridehead Estate, um, or offered the opportunity um, to come here. It was, it was a very large farm, 880 acres at the time. Um, so we offered the opportunity, but because it was slightly bigger than what we were looking for, we had to think slightly outside the box of how we were going to capitalise the project, because it was more you know, to do that. It was um, more more money than we had available to start the farm. And most traditional dairy farms, 
you, you, you pour concrete, you have your cows in the sheds, um, and it, it's, it's a very you know, capital-hungry project to start. So we've started at a fraction of the cost by you know having these milking bales outside in the field that we move every day. So we've got no slurry storage, we've got no food haulage, we've got... Um, no concrete to pour or yards to scrape or dirty water systems to get rid of any effluent. Um, so, you know, our cow is our, our forage harvester, you know, which cuts the grass, it's our dung spreader, you know, and it provides us milk. And you know, but what we did as a start as a, um, this is how we're going to get into farming cheaply, actually has evolved into, we've got these really relaxed cows now, we're milking them in their environment rather than taking them back to our environment to milk them. Yeah. So, so because traditional farming, before we, because I'm fascinated uh, doing a bit of research into in the, in the difference of cost, because normally the barrier to entry to get into dairy farming from scratch, and, and this is even with you, with all at least having all of the knowledge and understanding of how it works, basically it's a huge amount of capital. And that's because traditional farming is investment in, in the barns and also investment in, in technology. Lots of cows are now milked by robots. Can you just explain a little bit about What's the traditional approach before we get into the difference with well, what you do? What's the traditional? I guess from, you know, you know basically after all the 1940s, you know, we weren't self-sufficient as a country in food. So um, farmers were encouraged to produce more. Well, a cow living in a barn in a controlled environment is not sheltering from the wind and rain. So it will produce more if it's inside. So bringing your food inside um, and in taking the, the dung away. So I guess dairying has evolved to be slightly more of an indoor business to increase production. But of course, when you've spent a million pounds on a barn, you need to gain from that investment. And, you know, that that's, um, I guess, we've been industry driven by the consumer and you know, by government policies to put cows inside and intensification. Well, that was fine and probably until the early 90s, and then with world free trade and that, that sort of stuff, milk price dropped hugely. And and it's been really challenging for all farmers to suddenly producing milk on a world price basis, unless you've got an exclusive um, contract. But I, I think 85% of dairy farmers in the UK would be basically subject to the world market forces. Um, we're now on about 30p a litre for our milk. In 2016, we're on 18p for our milk, which was well below the cost of production out of your hands there's nothing we can do about that so it's been very tough for a conventional system which if if you do build that system it's maybe cost you about seven thousand pounds per cow place you know we've been able to set up at you know just over 300 pounds a cow place it's a huge amount it's, yeah of, a mind-blowing statistic yes. when i read that last night um so you know that's sort of how we've got there you know it's nothing i've or Neil and I have been clever about doing particularly, I guess it's the circumstances we found ourselves in have driven us down this route. Um, and, you know, again, I, I don't ever like to be compared to any other farming system. We don't produce milk in the winter months. And if you want milk on your cornflakes, you're going to have to get, you know, over Christmas, you're going to have to get your milk from a cow that's producing milk inside. Um, and, I mean, the amazing thing about the British dairy industry is there's so many different ways to do it. You can milk with robots, you can milk on a rotary parlour, you can have your cows inside all year round, you can have your cows half inside and half outside, or like ours, outside all year round. You know, we are 
really feral free range, if you if you could call it that. Um, you know, it's it's tough on people being outside all all the time, but it's it's great for our cows and. Okay. I think if you look at them, they're fairly <laughs> well relaxed. You don't, yeah, we're literally uh, now surrounded, 360 degrees. They're clearly fascinated. They don't eat Land Rovers, do they? <laughs> um, they give it a good lick. Yeah, okay. So I, I found that, and I, I appreciate the downside, and I had to appreciate that. Doing a bit of research last night, looking at this 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 entry-level cost, you know, 350 quid a cow compared to £7,000 a cow, it, it looks almost too good to be true but I guess if you haven't got milk in the winter there's certainly one compromise but can we go into a little detail then about you know how it works with you what you do because you're called the open air dairy uh how does it work by contrast to that industrial process you spoke of well I guess our cows are outside eating I mean the the diet would be 95 percent grass buttercups daisies whatever's out here in the field clover plenty of clover um and so our, the production we'd be getting out of our cows would get about 4,300 litres a year on, on average from the cows, which is obviously mainly from grass. Um, grass gives a lot of flavour to milk. So um, there's a lot of Jersey cow and Channel Island genetics within our cows. Our cows are a lot smaller, so they're sort of 450 kilogram animals, whereas a, more of a traditional Holstein would be around 700 kilos. So a lot bigger cows, but we want the girls to be light on their feet. They then don't get lame. They're also okay to be outside in wet conditions. And, and this is to do with the breed of the cow or what they eat? Yeah, so, so this is the, the breed of the cow is why they're this size, but also in, in, within the genetics of the cow, they're just very good grass converters. So turning grass into milk. Right. This cow going to hump me? Yes. Yeah. No, she, she just <laughs> wants a she? stroke around Hello? the ears. If you, okay. if you give her a stroke, Hello. she'll... Great. So I should at least be able to guess the sex of the cow. Clearly not yes. going to hump me. So go no. with, that, with that funny horn on the top. I wasn't sure, but that's good. I was just being, uh, for those of you listening, uh, what's the word? Uh, rubbed. Let's say rubbed by uh, by a cow. Okay, so they're that. So so it's the breed of the cow, but also presumably they're not uh, well, in the commercial or in the industrial process. They're fed a lot more, are they? I, I, I don't um, know if it's force-fed or so, they just so fed something that... No, no so... Um, it's, it's, I would sort of relate it to, if you want to relate cows and cars yep. as a parallel, these little cows are like, you know, um, like a little Land Rover, really. They're, they're designed for all conditions, not particularly quick, but very robust. You know, a cow that's inside being milked three times a day is a little bit more of a Ferrari, you know, very high performer. You can't put that cow that's used to being in a barn outside in a field albeit they're both called cows and they have four legs and they may be black and white, they, they really are very different animals. Okay. Um, and it would almost be cruel to put a house cow outside. And they the, never go in the winter. They're inside all so, year. Some cows are, yes, yes. You know, and then they've got these, you know, comfortable uh, cubicles, either water beds or sand beds, um, automatic scraping facilities, keeping everything, um, you, know, sterile, you know, completely sterile, almost on a hospital in environment uh, as, a, as an indoor cow um, we just do it a little bit differently there's a little bit more mud and sweat out in the field um, but we've got an animal that's you know designed to live outside in the rain and the wind or in the sunshine as we are today and you mentioned that your cows would produce 4,300 litres a year what would be the literage from a, a an inside cow or oh, anything up to 15,000 litres right. a year okay so, um, so three times as much and then the key point apart from them being outside the thing that you, that was I don't know particularly uh, clever uh, although in many ways you're going back to a more traditional approach is you milk them in the fields rather than having to take them back to the 
to the yeah, barn so, or the yeah, concrete so the, area. So how does that work? How do you actually milk a cow? And if I'm, I'm imagining somebody sat there with a little tin, like I've seen in uh, yes. <laughs> The Sound of Music, but it's not quite it's not quite that process. But. No, no, there is a little bit of music. Um, <laughs> uh, so we've got uh, two trailers. Um, they're 40-foot trailers, which can milk 20 cows at a time. So at any one point, we're milking 40 cows at a time. Um, the trailers actually hold 80 cows, so 20 are waiting or 40 cows are waiting, should I say, whilst 40 cows being milked. Um, and as soon as they step off the milking parlor, they're back onto the grass again. Um, so they're eating or lying down, and then they, they get up and um, get milked, which is about a 10-minute process. And then, then they're back eating grass again in the field. And, and that's become, you know, come rain or shine. And then that milking parlor is then moved every afternoon, so we get a fresh milking spot for the evening milking um, and, and the following morning. And then any dung or slurry that's left, any washings off the milking parlour is in the field. You know, directly, there's no secondary movement of anything. Right. And, th and then you were explaining to me as we drove around and saw this. It's, 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 I'm laughing because this cow is using me as, a, I, think, I suppose, an itching stick, fundamentally. They've got some pressure behind them, aren't they, when you're wedged uh, in between yes. a cow and a yeah, well, You know, I think you're probably only 80 kilos and she's 450. It's... Although I've got the better end than the other one that's just having a pee. Um, but there, what I found fascinating as we were driving around is this, this almost this self-management process. So because they're in a more natural environment, you were saying about the pecking order and, and how the cows actually go through this, uh, this, this parlour. Can you just explain a little bit about yeah. that? Yeah. So, we, so in, the, in the morning, we'll we're rock up at half past six and we'll we're lift a, a wire up um, to expose more grass. So probably two or three acres of fresh grass. So the cows are all run in because as a cow if they hear a, a, a fence reel whine they think oh fresh grass so they all run into the yard behind the milking parlour um, and there's, they'll eat the fresh grass in front of them for about 20 or 30 minutes and then half the cows will lie down and then half of them will walk to the milking parlour um, to get milked now their motivation to get milked is they know once they get milked they get even more fresh grass so when they come through the mil milking parlour they're 10 minutes for milking and then they're off, and as they have today, trotted down over the hill to get a fresh break of grass that we're standing in now. Um, and then as the cows, they, they have a pecking order, so you have a greedy one or a slow one. They need plenty of space around each other to move past each other. So with the big yard that we have that they can feed in, they'll all lie down. Um, and then gradually, individually, they'll all get up in near enough the same order every day and go through the milking parlour. Um, you know, and it's something we've had to learn. You know, there was no one we could copy that was milking cows outside, you know, on the scale that we're doing here. So we've had to find this out. So to start off with, we were very conventional with a small little rectangular yard. Um, and, the, and the cow flowing, you know, cows flowing through the milking parlour wasn't working very well. So we said one day, well, let's just give them a massive yard. And, and no one had to get a cow in, you know, and, and they just volunteered to come through. And and, that, and that's what they do now. And it's it's just led to everyone on the farm being relaxed, the cows being relaxed. Um, and as you say, in the field with us at the moment, there's 60 bulls, they're all relaxed. Um, we're all natural insemination here. Um, and so it's, it's just a little bit more of a natural cycle. Because in a, in a traditional uh, milking parlour, how are the cows? They're, they're forced through, they're, or at least in, um, encouraged somewhat more than um, you need so, to? So some people would feed in, in a milking parlour, so they'd right. go and get some um, uh, some cereals, some cow cake, as we would call it. So little feeders, so they're encouraged to go into the milking parlour to get a little feed of concentrates. Um, we don't have any feeding system on our parlour. It is a very simple um, milking parlour, so... 
So we don't do that. You know, you would you would have a, I guess, in a conventional, you you'd have a small rectangular concrete yard. So you get a group, maybe, and you'd have batches of animals. You'd bring maybe fifty in at a time, milk them, and then bring another fifty in. Um, whilst you know their beds are being cleaned and and, and that process, so it's a little bit more of a um, a precision sort of operation right. um, compared to here, which is a little bit. Um, I shouldn't say ramshackle, but um, <laughs> it's just sim- it's a it's a very simple. Yeah, system. it feels a bit like a festival. It feels yeah. like you know, if I was a cow, I'd be quite happy here. And that and that motor. So the, the pecking order you talk of, it, it, it's done by what the most important cow goes first. How do they decide? I appreciate you don't speak cow, um, but what's the, yes? Uh, it, well, so just in front of you here, this is a little heifer. So she's she's only um, probably uh, two years, three months old. Right. Um, so she's had a calf for the first time this year. And and now you know she's she's in a milking cycle. So generally, because they're the youngest, they might stay at the back. Right. Okay. You know, so. and just wait for the older cows to go through. And then you've got sort of older granny cows. So that one with the orange ear tag there, she's 12 years old. Now she might be being less dominant now and wants to just take it easy. So she might come through, you know, midway through. And it's, I guess it's, I guess. Um, if you'd imagine, say, everyone queuing up for a ski lift, you get a few people that push in and, yeah. you know, be a bit rude and yeah. other people that are, oh, no, you go in front of me. And it's they just sort it out the same as us, really. Right. Okay. Uh, amazing. Um, and then, so I know you're you're uh, deliberately not sort of critical of other ways and, and doing it this way. It's just like you say, you need you need multiple ways uh, of looking after cows, I suppose, and particularly if we want milk all year round. But what's what apart from the finances? I get the impression that that you don't now just do this because it makes economic sense. You, it looks like you've sort of fallen in love with this as a way of looking after cows compared to the kind of traditional system you had as a kid. Is that fair, or what's your experience? Yes, around that? I mean. The, the the whole system was designed because we didn't have much cash to get in into farming. So, and then we had a fantastic opportunity which we couldn't really turn down. So we had to think outside the box. I guess with Neil's accounting skills, you're right. Actually, if we do this, do that. I was the practical guy um, that's got to make it work. So Neil says, look, I think we can do it if we could milk on a trailer. We don't have to do this, that, and the other. Can you build a system of which you know myself and the the team on the farm have have done? So we've made it work just you know so we could make it work the the knock-on effect of that has been is is now what we're seeing with the, with the commercial interest we've had in what we're doing um we've got these cows that are super relaxed you know the production's gone up because of that situation the milk quality um is, is second to none so you know, the flavors we're getting in our cheese at the moment which is you know solely coming from grass i think is reflected because the cows are so relaxed um and the cows lasting longer you know we don't we get very little lameness um in the cows so we're you know um so i I'm trying. I don't. I'm a bit wary of quoting figures. I don't know. Um, but we've we've got about three percent of the herd maybe a lame here okay. or have a lameness issue, which is hugely lower than sort of like the national average. Should you say? What so, causes that? Then? Um, I guess it's walking. Right. And these girls aren't walking anywhere. What we what we're on is we're on a very flinty farm, so you get flints coming up through the grass. Um, which causes um, lameness when you get a sort of a spiky flint in your foot. Um, but I guess lameness is caused in cows by walking up and down tracks um, or spending a lot of time on concrete. Um, so we, more traditional systems would sort of be foot trimming quite regularly and doing a lot of uh, hoof, hoof health, 
you know, um, it'd have foot baths and pedicures almost as in, in the cow um, sense. We don't actually have to do any of, of that here um, because we're not in that sort of environment, right. I suppose. And so with that, your cows are lasting longer. So we're getting cows that are lasting 10, 12 years old. And, and what's the um, norm again in a more industrial approach? Um, maybe three lactations, so a cow living to five years would be an, would be an average figure for an in, intensive um, cow. So that, that's a, a, a remarkable feel. When I read that last night, I think I'd read two and a half and 12 years or something like that. Yes. That, that's, that, that feels incredible. Yes. Again, as a, as a consumer rather than a farmer, uh, seems fantastic. Have you been surprised by, uh, I don't know, the learnings that you've gone on and, and the change in approach? Have you been surprised by what's possible and, uh, and the pleasure that you get from doing this compared to a traditional approach? I say traditional. This is yes. traditional if you go back yes. far enough. But let's say yeah, so post-1940 yeah. traditional, yeah. I suppose. Yeah. In, intensive um i am i surprised i think i just enjoy it every day and um every day's a school day so we're always learning something new um and i guess it's just it's been a nice thing for what what sort of economic reasons for doing what we've done is actually you look at the herd and and and, and the health status we've got um you know, it's just really pleasing. Actually, what you're doing is working for the cows as well as it's working for us. And and you, the, you, you're, you know, clearly uh, humble and laid back, but this wasn't easy, was it? In 2009, you, you had the idea, or I think you saw somebody else who was doing it on a much smaller scale, is that yes, correct? Yes, we, you know, we went to visit a, a chap on the Somerset Levels who had the old sort of hosier milking bales, which was sort of pioneered in the 1920s, um, a chap called Tom Tinknell. And he very kindly invited us up and, you know, we went and had lunch with his family and he showed us what he did. Um, and he was milking 170 cows through two old hosier bales and was just doing a phenomenal job here. Um, he actually brought on the sunset levels, obviously, underwater during the winter. So he was milking out on the, on the, the levels during the summer and then bringing his bales back and milking them, uh, putting them in the barn and uh, milking the cows in the barn over the winter. And so looking at that gave us the inspiration for thinking, actually, can we scale it up and do it a bit bigger and you know, modernise the machinery um, and, and build our own? Um, but whilst you were trying to do that, you had the idea, there was this sort of three-year period where you didn't have any land to do it, but that didn't stop you buying cows. Uh, again, in, in, in the city, in the normal yes. world, we wouldn't think, OK, like, like, let's start getting cows now. We've got no plan. Can you just explain, uh, A, yeah. why, and B, how did you, or how many cows did you get over that sort of three-year period before you actually had anywhere to do this? Yeah, so I, I guess the, the, the biggest thing I learned, you know, in, in suddenly having the sort of rug pulled from beneath you and where, where I was in the family business, and suddenly you're there out on your own, what am I going to do next? Um, and you know, someone said you need to set goals. So in 2009, we set a goal to milk 300 cows. Um, hello, bully. It's a big lad. Sorry, a big bull's just walked over. Have a bit of a sniff. He's wondering what's going on. Yeah, um, I'll, let, I'll let you take charge at this point. If he starts yeah. rubbing against my leg, you might see me looking a bit more nervous. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no, he's all right. Um, so we set goals that we want to milk 300 cows. Find a farm, 250 acres, and milk 300 cows. Um, somewhere in the southwest. Right. Um, and so with that, we're doing a bit of research. But then the, the, the problem is, is, you know, to grow a calf and then get a cow and calf ready to milk, um, it's, it's the same gestation period for a, 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 for a calf as it is a human, um, nine months. Right. Um, 
And it's a bit of a chicken and egg. What do you get? You get a farm and then you've got to get your cows. But if you've got not much cash, you sort of, what, what do you do? So we were buying sort of empty cows. So these are cows that aren't in calf, so they're not going to produce milk. Um, and then giving them another chance with a bull to get in calf. But then that would be a year until she's going to um, have a baby to then be able to milk. Um, then we were buying uh, young calves, which are obviously a lot cheaper than buying a cow. So you need to then grow that for a couple of years before then you can get her in calf to then produce milk. So we decided to build a herd. Um, and, you know, I rented um, fields in Beer Regis um, and the Tolliba Corum. And then we were grazing the Poundbury building site um, around the roundabout at the fire station or the fire station which wasn't even there when we started. And I was asking anyone with a bit of free grazing what we could do. So to, you know, to make that plan of having 300 cows you're ready to milk in 2012, which was the goal. And in the meantime, looking at tenancy options and contract farming agreements you know, across the south. And that's how we ended up with this opportunity. And we came here with 300 cows. And then sort of the evolution from that was actually we got a farm that could milk 800 cows. So without building a static parlour and concrete and slurry pits and that side of things, we were able to buy some more cows to then... Um, start the process and you know we started off milking um, 450 cows in 2012 our first season um, everyone said how's it gonna how's it gonna go milking outside in a wet year and I don't know if you remember 2012 but we had double the rainfall we were meant to Winterbourne Abbas flooded and actually it worked really well uh, we had four inches of rain during one milking which is pretty tough on on people but actually we all had big smiles on our faces because actually we knew the system could work even in the wet, right. which was always, what are you going to do on a rainy day? And yeah. So, you, so, you, so the challenge, you'd seen it done at, at 170, milking once a day, presumably, yeah. was could you scale that up to 800? Now, am I right in thinking that th this approach does exist in New Zealand, was it? The, the, uh, no, no. So we're, we're using a New Zealand grazing method. So in, right. in New Zealand, most of the cows eat grass on a, you know, paddock grazing system, new break of grass every 12 hours, but the parlour is still static. It's, a, it's a, a cheaper form of milking, so you still have a milking parlour centrally in the farm, but you'd have a lot of tracks leading back to those milking parlours. So that's sort of the New Zealand um, grazing method, which has been adopted by quite a few farms in this country. So you'll, you'll still walk the cows back and they'll be out at grass all year round, but they will be back, walked back to a central site. Every day. Every day. To be um, so the chap on the Somerset Levels and Arthur Hosey designed the system in the 1920s was the first sort of chap that we know of taking a mechanical parlour out to the field and leaving it out there. And he had two men and 50 cows was a team and, you know, built a, you know, a, a big milking empire, you know, from 1920 to 1940. Um, we've just copied that, you know, and I don't like to be smart. We've just copied a lot of clever people along the way and um, we've not really done anything original. <laughs> Yeah, but that's the way of uh, most businesses. I think you know, I make a living out of uh, serving food to people, and I, I didn't really invent food. I don't think. Yes. I think it's been around for quite a while. So, uh, but yeah, we uh, we tweak and learn. So one of the challenges then, having gone right, okay, we we get the system, we can see the advantages, uh, but you needed the kit to actually be able to do it. So these these parlours that you tow into the fields and, and literally you know take them to the cows rather than bring the cows to the kit, it, they didn't really exist, did they? Or you did manage to find some, or you found one buried in a ditch or, yeah. or, or, or being grown over by yes. grass. So so we were looking. The, the old hosier bales and there's a few in sort of hedges and, and bits and pieces and we thought we needed eight of those old bales and I think we'd found four 
And then a local dairy engineer, Richard Churchill, said, well, there's a, there's a, there's a herringbone sort of milking trailer um, over at Winfrith. And so we went over to um, field, Fields Farm in Winfrith and found this temporary or as a mobile milking parlour um, in a hedge. And I spoke to the chap who hired them out. And he had six of these parlours in the 80s, which we was hiring out regularly when people were refitting a, a current parlour in, in their shed. Would hire this um, temporary milking parlour, put it in their yard. It would take about a day to set up. And then once they re rebuilt their own dairy unit, they'd be milking the, their cows through this for about a month. Um, but I think as the milk price dropped, people stopped doing up their old milking parlours and they either decided to get out of milking or they were going to build a new shed and double the size of their herd. So these um, mobile milking parlours uh, became almost obsolete. Anyway, we got in touch with him and we hired three for the first year and then um, we had to alter them a lot because it took a day to move them, you know, to try and get the movement down, say, an hour or two. Um, and then what we learned over that first year in 2012 of how to do it, um, I then designed a new milking parlour. I mean, these parlours would only milk 12 cows at a time. So then we designed another one that would milk 20 cows at a time. They also had um, steps on rather than ramps. The cows were slipping on a ramp. Someone did tell me cows wouldn't go up steps, but we put these steps on and actually the cows love running up and down steps. Um, you didn't know that until you built no, it? No, no, not at all. There was a chap in Wales that had built an underpass for steps and he told me they ran through which was hard to believe. And I asked him for the dimensions of the steps. So I just put the same on. And I thought it's easy to turn some steps into a ramp okay. if it didn't work. Um, but it did. And, you know, it's, it's worked, worked very well. So, you know, in the winter of 2012-13, we built the first parlour, you know, together with a local engineer, Mike Fry, um, gave a fair bit of input to help us do it. Um, and then 2014, we built our second one, and then we off-hired the parlours, the temporary parlours that we had had. And so we had our own sort of bespoke kit. You know, we started with two old hospital generators, which were 25 years old. Um, I think they gradually blew up, and, you know, then we sort of bought a newer generator. Um, so it was all second-hand kit, sort of done at a, you know, shoestring price. And... I guess we never knew whether it was going to work to invest in new gear and trying to do it. You know, it was always a, a bit of a challenge. And you know, I guess that's now evolved into other farmers now are asking us, um, you know, could you build us a system? You know, can we come and have a look round? So we're starting to show people round. We've now built two systems for do, two different farmers. So that's another thing we never planned on doing, but um, yeah, we've, we're now manufacturing milking parlours. Absolutely not. I've got to ask before I ask the next question, but I'd say at least fifty percent of the cows in the field just sat down and have laid down. What, what does that mean? Anything or is it? Uh... Yeah. So what they've what they've done is they've been milked, they've come over and they've filled their bellies with grass, so the fresh right. grass. They're now sitting down. If they're all chewing their cud, so a cow once it's filled its first stomach will then lie down and then bring it back up and they chew the cud. And so, you know, they're, they're just chilled out now, so they, they haven't got to walk anywhere else. They might actually all get up in a minute and go for a drink. 
right. to the water trough. So they're all at the same time. Are they, are yeah, they creatures? Does one do it? Because literally, I mean, it's not it's not all of them. There must be at least fifty percent all did it within the space of about ninety seconds. Is it? Uh, yeah. They follow each other. I think I don't know. The leader cow must have let out a shout. Come on, yeah, come on, sit, let's sit have a little down lie time. down and chat. I tell you what, it looks looking pretty idyllic. And, and again, going off on a bit of a tangent. So you say they. they that <laughs> um they uh they they chew the card and, and what's the process and how long does this go on for before it oh, turns into a bit like going back into I your biology days ask me this, and I, uh, I was a very poor student the cow has seven <laughs> stomachs seven stomachs okay um, i misremembered four from my childhood and i can tell you what abba mason no mason <laughs> rumen reticulum hey god your, your teacher's going to be listening going i'm bloody proud of that boy well done <laughs> yeah that's about all i can remember so you put me on the spot now but yeah so anyway they all do they, something they all do something and um they can eat grass and we can't right okay <laughs> and so yeah yeah that, so they, they sit down they relax and so actually they're now converting the grass into milk into milk so they're making some milk so if yeah. you if the cow's standing up and eating or lying down and chewing a cud, you're doing a good job. Right. If they're all heaped up in a corner of a field and something's upsetting them, then they're not making milk. So to have them relax like this, if a cow's relaxed, they're going yeah. to produce milk. Yeah. And it's the misconception of farmers being cruel to animals, you know, or, or, or whatever. It's never in your interest. An animal will perform to you, whether it's putting on weight or whether it's milking, producing wool or, or whatever, but they only do that if they're relaxed and happy. Mm. And so all of us, whether you're keeping a cow inside or a cow outside or a sheep on a mountain or wherever, you want them to be happy in the environment they're in. And then if they do, then they'll, they'll perform okay. to what you want. So um, you were the first guys to be doing this on this kind of scale then. You've, you've basically developed your own kit, albeit it's an evolution um, of other people's kit. And now people are what? They're looking at what you're doing and they're saying, we might do the same, can you help? What's their primary motivation? How much of this is coming from a, a, a cash perspective and how much of it is coming from the kind of the change we seem to be seeing with the consumer around uh, animal welfare? Um, I think... You know the, you know the, the, you know the farm that's taken on the Kingsclear Estate up near Basingstoke. It's a very large um, arable estate, and they wanted to rotate grass with their arable crops. You know, starting to put, you know, organic matter back into the soil. Um, the chap up there called Tim Mays, very clever, very concerned about soil and the environment, and so he saw it as a way of. Instead of converting his farm to a dairy farm, um, where you would have to then put tracks and bits and pieces across his big arable fields, he thought, well, actually, you don't have to put any tracks in. I can get cows to rotate with my arable crops. They can put the goodness in. Um, you know, they eat grass. You know, 90% of the grass comes out the back end in the form of poo, which is then organic matter. That's then feeding the soil microbes and worms and in you know, and the, the rest of the the ecosystem and then you take a little bit of milk away um and then in turn your arable crops that come after that are then feeding off that fertility that you're putting back into the soil so he's seen it for you know the goodness of a soil um can i say is that a one-year thing do you you get you put the cows on the field for a year or is i think a i think or? he's five years of um these herbal lays i think he's putting up there Right. Um, you'd have to speak to Tim directly to confirm that, but so he would be, you know, a proportion of his a fifth, say, of his farm would be 
down to a herbal lays, and then the rest of it will be arable, and then he will just rotate it. it herbal, so, herbal lays, that's what the cows eat? Is that yeah, what you're so, about? so herbal lays, it sounds, um, sounds great, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, it's, it I think it's a, a wider variety of grasses and, and legumes. Right. Um, deeper rooting. Um, he's also organic. Right. Um, and um, so it's a, it's a new sort of a process of having these herbal lays. They're di- more of a diverse sort of grass. Okay. I'd Off say. the back of what, a learning about uh, or, or, or a consumer demand for organic or just an, a continued evolution and learning of what's effective farming? I think as all of us as farmers, you're, you're, you're trying to do the best for the environment, really. And you, no one wants to lose their soil because then your productivity goes down. So we're all trying to be good farms and look after the the farms and you get a few highlighted cases where something's gone wrong but it's never intentional you know all of us want to look after the wildlife whether you're an intensive arable farmer or not um, or an intensive dairy farmer or, or extensive but we're all trying to do the best we can for the environment on our farm as well as trying to run a commercial business and, and make money to provide for our families um, so you know whether you're a very rich you know, a state owner with 5,000 acres, we're all concerned about the land. Anyone living on it is. Um, so it's, um, there's just different ways of mm. doing the job, isn't there? Absolutely, and, um, yeah. And and there's been a lot of um, publicity, I guess, of uh, the likes, you know, the, the supermarkets, I suppose, and the pressure on milk and therefore this uh, this challenge where I, I think you're right, every farmer I meet generally seems to, you know, want to look after the land, want to look after the animals, but also say, you know, we've got to make a living. There's a point where we can and a point where we uh, where we can't. Is that getting worse or getting better, that situation? I guess, you know, the UK has got the highest welfare standards and food standards in the world. And, you know, that's full stop that's statement where i think us as you know english british farmers is when you're allowed to import food into this country that doesn't have those standards and which is then taking out our product so we end up as english farmers british farmers have a higher cost of production than most other people because of the restrictions that put on us because of the traceability and because of the systems you know this you know is probably more expensive to produce milk doing it our way than maybe an intensive cow in a barn. But that price isn't reflected. Um, and I guess it's, there's a lot of people say I like organic or I like it extensive, but it's not actually what's put in a shopping basket. And, and that's probably the toughest thing as farmers is how do you get that message across that you've got to pay a little bit more money. And, you know, there's always milk is in everyone's shopping basket. So you have to go shopping for milk three times a week. So if the milk is cheapest in that shop, you'll be going to that one. So it's always almost sold as a lost leader milk, um, which is very tough being a dairy farmer and, you know, you're working hard. Water, bottled water is more expensive than milk. You know, that just comes out of the ground or out of a tap. Um, so it's it's frustrating, and the worry, Brexit, another massive thing for farmers, um, is what's going to happen. You know, are deals going to be done where there's free trade? Because if there's free trade, then there's a lot of 
imported food coming in with lower standards, which basically blows us all out the water. And this comes from the fact that the expectation is more food will come from outside of Europe rather than within Europe. Because although you say the UK has got the best standards... Uh, presumably a significant amount of stuff comes in from Europe at the moment. So although yeah. we're the best, they're the second best. Is, is the concern, it, it, it's, it's well, more U- stuff coming in from Europe or it's more stuff well, coming from I out mean, of Europe? Um, I, I wouldn't know the proportions of what comes in or out. We're definitely not self-sufficient in dairy products or milk in this country. Right. We're a net importer. Okay. Um, so it's, but there's still, we import, you know, which is like, it says supply and demand. We should be... Um, so which you should think in this country we will have a higher milk price because of it because we've got to buy it in. Um, the risks of the you know doing a deal with the US is import tariffs on US stuff at the moment they can produce food cheaper than anyone else you know they've got these mega dairies of eighty thousand cows hundred thousand cows they can produce dairy products very cheaply if we did a deal with no tariffs with them you know I think ninety percent of consumers would be buying the cheapest food that's on the shelf um you know i think yeah that, that, I, and, that, and that's the, that's the worry about the industry and um yeah i don't i mean i'm not a clever enough man to to know about that and these are all buts and ifs yeah so you know, what i've got to do is concentrate on what i'm doing i've got to concentrate on my cost of production to try and keep my costs as low as possible and then if i can trying you know, i'm talking to you so i'm you know i'm trying to promote myself i guess within that if i can then promote myself and make a difference of there's a difference between me and there's a difference between a farmer in the us um you hope people would choose what we're doing mm. um so that's yeah that's within my control what yeah. i don't want to do is i don't want to moan about the weather because yeah. i'm a farmer i'm sorry I, si- <laughs> I signed up to what weather comes at me we got to deal with. I also knew going into this business that I was subject to world market forces and subject to government policy. Yeah. So we can we can have a moan, you can try and influence it. But actually, the main things I can concentrate on is my farming system, I can choose to do that. My cost of production, I can try and be as efficient as I can and then shout about what we're doing and doing well and you know, hope that you educate people and people like what you're doing. And without, you know, we, we can only do what the consumer wants. Yeah, I think that's key, isn't it? And, and, and it's a frustration and it's all very well, you know, living our middle class lives and saying people should pay a little bit more for milk. And I, and I hope by having these conversations that it makes people realise, because it's come up a number of times, particularly around the US, things like chlorinated chicken and animal yeah. standards and stuff, but not just the US, you know, the further east you go in Europe. Um, certainly how we're going to manage the borders and... and I suppose it's whose responsibility is it? You know, does it is it government regulation? Is it the supermarkets who are actually you know negotiating the price? And do they should they just sell on price, or actually do they have a responsibility to also think about nutrition and animal welfare, um, or is it actually just the consumer? And the more the consumer understands, and the more they know. And I guess the answer is it's all three. But what what's your um, sales pitch to the consumer? What can they do uh, to help? I'm pausing for a long while. What can well, I guess choose British food, really, and research into what you. If you have the time, and everyone generally now has a smartphone which you can Google, just research into what what you're doing. If you've got that idle five minutes and say, well, actually, I might just Google the standards of the milk I picked up today, or where my crisps come from, or a chocolate bar, or whatever, and and are you comfortable with what you bought? And actually, you know, 
you might say, well, actually, you know, I've, I've just bought a Japanese car. Am I happy with how that's made? And, you know, I could have bought a British one, but it was more expensive. Well, there's an economic reason why I've done it. You know, I prefer to buy a Japanese car because it's cheaper, it's better made or not. So I'm not saying you have to do it, but just if, as long as you're happy with your decisions that you make, then that's fine. But we, I guess as we as consumers have got to make an informed decision and we all can now. Um, there's plenty of research out there. Yeah. I, I, and I think you know, it's one of the motivations for me having this conversation is that you know I'm I'm in a market. Admittedly, I'm on the on the cold place, but it ripples back. You know, I sell a lot of cappuccinos and I sell a lot of uh, lattes, and uh, yeah, I've become increasingly concerned about the race to the bottom in the dining sector, uh, without mentioning brands because otherwise I get in trouble with the lady who helps me produce this. But you know, the the the, the, the most popular pubs and restaurants and bars on the high street. Are, are kind of cheap and cheerful and, and, and you know, sell crap. And I just want, and, and there needs to be a market uh, for that because not everybody's got the spare cash. But what frustrates me is the number of people who actually have got the money. And, it, and, and it's when they do it subconsciously rather than consciously. I think they just drift along. They don't think about it. They'll go into a, into a Thai restaurant and order some chicken and not appreciate that that chicken's been flown over from Thailand and it's been injected with a kind of, you know, saline solution to make it heavier and have, make it have more value. Or, or where prawns come from, the fact that most prawns are grown in Vietnam and Thailand and they're pumped full of antibiotics and their shit but but most people will just go to a restaurant and go oh I love prawns I'll have prawns on the starter and they don't ask the questions and I don't know why that is but I think we should try and help people yes yeah I think well said <laughs> so uh, so yeah so we're, we're at least doing my bit um so we've talked a bit about uh, happy animals. We've talked a little bit about costs. Actually, I've got to go back to something you said because you said that you producing milk your way is potentially more expensive than through the um, intensive approach. But so, so is that the case? Is it is it still nuanced? Because you've basically got much lower cost of investment. You've got lower, presumably, capital cost. I think is, maybe our variable costs will be slightly high. You know, there's more people running right. around here, which is why these girls are not maybe too concerned about people they're okay. not scared of us at all um it's true so there's things, I've, got more, I've, I've, got, I've got quite a big team around us right. you know and you know we had a was the last storm of rain came in i can't remember was it a couple of fridays ago and instead of three people milking there was five of us out here you know, just because it was backs against wall chaps, right, we've all got to muck in together. It's really raining hard. Let's get this job done quickly. To so do it faster or because it's hard? Or what it's, makes it, it, it is. It's, you know, no one's enjoying, you know, the cows are not enjoying the rain in their face and that sort of stuff. Um, you know, some of the cows wouldn't actually come onto the front of the milking parlour because they're enjoying this shelter. So we've got a roof over the parlours here. But at the front of the parlour, because the rain was coming sideways at you, the cows wouldn't stand in the first five stalls. Right. So actually, it meant we could only use three quarters of the milking parlour. Um, now, there's two ways of looking at that. You go, well, push them up and so they're getting the rain in the face or not. Well, the idea was actually we won't push them up, but we just milk the back 15 cows, you know, and, and get them through that way. Um, and it's just unpleasant. So you just want to get the job over and done with, you know, someone did a bacon sandwich run, you know, and a bit of hot coffee going on. And and that, I guess, having to deal with the weather because we're not in a con controlled environment is a cost to what we're doing. Right. Um, and, you know, again, this business is not only we're looking after all the cows, we're looking after a lot of people. And then with that, their families and that sort of stuff. So we want to have a good environment for people to work in here. And I think as... 
a duty of care if people are struggling, then you, you want to try and make it easier. Okay. So lots of benefits. How about the actual sort of working day and the work the work quality life? Apart from being outside in the rain, which must be the downside. How does it compare? So if you're you know you say uh, intensively could be up to four times a day. You're milking twice a day. What does the day look like as a farmer here compared to intensive? And is there a benefit or disbenefit on either of those? Yeah. So um, for us, um, we do things slightly differently. So we start at half past six. We meet um, the cows are all in and started milking by seven o'clock. Um, Why so early? Uh, because we want to milk twice a day. Right. And so ideally you want to split that milking you know, 10 hours apart at least. Um, so if you're milking, say, cows uh, three times a day, you'd be milking every eight hours to try and... You want an even split between all your milkings. Okay. Um, only bakers have it worse than that. That's the other one I asked. Yes. They seem to start at four, so just yeah. interested. But yeah, go on. And carry you know, on. Where, where I was milking at home, you know, I said at home on the, on the family farm before, which was an intensive system. You know, I was starting at half past three milking in the morning, or getting up half past three, getting to the dairy at four o'clock. Um, Again, what, yes. because of the need to do four times a day. Well, right? that was three times a day milking. So we were starting milking at four, then twelve o'clock, and then. Eight o'clock, I think it was. Sorry, the dog's just um, getting a bit upset. The cows are rubbing the Land Rover so hard. <laughs> it does move around quite a lot, this yeah. Land Rover. I was slightly worried there was a bird at the back, but uh, yeah. Hopefully the lights are still on at the back. Um, anyway, um, so so our, our day now starts. So I'm trying, you know, the waking hours of a human being are sort of six, seven o'clock, and then we go to bed at 10 o'clock. Traditionally, milking has always been early in the morning, at four o'clock in the morning, and then two o'clock in the afternoon, and then you're checking your cows at 10 o'clock at night. And when I was doing that um, you know, in the pre previous business, you know, if you were milking, there wasn't any time for anything else in the day. You couldn't go out and socialize in the evening and go out to restaurant because you knew you had to be up at four o'clock in the morning. You were then trying to sleep during the middle of the day, which is when the kids were coming back from school. Um, and it was just, it, you, it was almost a vocation. You were milking and that was it. Um, now with our, our guys here, you know, they can be on an early shift so they can do a morning milking and then work in the afternoon. They're still home by four or five o'clock or they can be on an evening shift so they come in at one o'clock and then be home by 10 o'clock at night. So it's still within your waking hours, your sleep pattern's not broken. So you still have time to live life, you know, it's, and it's, you know, okay, I love this farm to bits. It's my business. You know, you want everyone that works on the farm to love it as much as you, but, you know, it is it's a job people want to earn money and they have other interests, they have other family that they want to see. So if you can make the hours pleasant for them, and this is why it's always been difficult in farming, you know, you know I've been there doing 18 hours every day and 15 hours a day or 12-hour days, you know getting the harvest in or, or doing whatever but it isn't really sustainable for the long period of time and I think there's a big turnover of staff within agriculture you know because it takes a bit it's a big pressure um, on family life working long hours and so if we can keep members of the, you know the team here for long periods of time because they're enjoying the life and it the farm fits in with their life you know we're working to live rather than living to work mm. 
um, but also earning a reasonable amount of money. And Yeah, so, so important. Happy team, uh, happy farmer, happy cows. Yeah. All, all, all sounds good so far. You mentioned one of the downsides is that uh, you can't milk all year. So what's your period where you can't milk? Yeah, so, so a cow will milk for nine months of the year. For a cow to milk, it has to have a baby calf. So And then when it has a calf, then it starts producing milk. Um, and so when the cow gets heavily pregnant, obviously the baby's taking up all the room um, so in her body cavity, so the stomach has the shrink, so then she can't eat enough food to grow a calf and produce milk. So all our girls have three months off, so we stop milking in December and then we start milking again in March. Um, and we're managing, not cows as individuals, we're managing them on a herd basis. So we try and get all the cows to have their babies in March and then we'll milk from March through to December. Um, and yeah, well, our milk is all going to, um, it's all bought, bought by barbers um, who are a cheese maker. Um, they've got the cheese factory, which is two miles away from here, um, Ford Farm. And so they, they buy all our milk and it goes into cheese. Now they will have people produce uh, milk in the winter and I have people that will produce milk in the spring. Um, and then they, with getting lots of different suppliers together, they get a, a constant milk flow throughout the year and, you know, make cheese all year round. Um, so I've lost so my what thread So well, what are you doing those three months then where you're so not producing milk? So in those three milk, months, what? all the cows go off farm and they eat root crops and any extra grass we grow in, in the summer, we make hay out of. So they'll eat hay and turnips over the winter, and, and basically they have three months off chilling still, still out. Still outside. Still outside in the in the fields. Yeah, in the fields. They mind? No, <laughs> no. It's um it's quite a satisfying job feeding turnips. So we give them we strip graze a field of turnips, and you, the field goes from green to brown as they eat the turnips off. Um, we do that on local arable farms. Um, so we go in, and they sow the turnips for us. We ship the cows to the turnips and then they stay there for three months and then um, what the arable farmer gets is organic matter back into his How do you get 800 cows to wherever the turnips are? We can move are. 20, 24 at a time and we we do roughly four trips a day and they're all within a 10 mile radius of in the a, farm here. Yeah, so tractor and trailer. Right. Um, so, for, so they all get a little holiday. It's they all nice. get a little they holiday, yeah. Yeah, so it's, we can roughly do four loads a day There's roughly 100 cows a day so that's eight days wow. of so you're Moving. you're busy. Do you keep the team employed? Because what are you doing for yeah. revenue in these three months then? Or are you just saving um, up? Well, in the it, I mean, and that's the big thing for us is cash flow. Mm. Um, so all our income comes within nine months, and then it's sort of shut the checkbook and try not to spend any money over the Christmas period. Yeah, apart from shipping your cows around. Uh, yeah, Dorset. Yeah, um, but I guess what we've done now, and you know, with help from the Barber family, is that they're now making a little bit of cheese for us, and we're. You know, because we are, I guess, our USP is we're milking in the field. No one else is. Um, there's been a lot of interest in what we're doing, and they've they've allowed us to, you know, make a little bit of cheese, which we're selling locally, and um, so we're getting a little bit of cheese income now okay. over the and, winter. And months. cheese sells in December quite a lot, and ready for Christmas and yes. stuff. So I suppose you yeah. could. Because I guess what I'm thinking is that it, it looks ideal from many aspects. It looks better for the animals, looks better for the farmer, better for the team. There's got to be some downsides. And I guess a lot of people are looking at it will go, well, the downside is, yeah, where am I going to get money for those three months? So the idea is 
you can either make enough when you're in peak season or you've got to diversify and you've got to come up with some other products. Because yeah. I, I guess it would feel like, again, from a sort of naive consumer perspective, but it would feel like uh, with all of those pluses that more people should be doing this across the country. Do you think that's going to happen? I think it will expand. I mean, I'd love to say yes, it's the world domination. Um, it's, this is definitely not for everyone, and every farm is different. You know, one of my best friends is on a very sandy, dry farm, sort of next to a river, which sounds funny, but his farm's very good for growing maize, and maize is you know, sort of a very good crop to feed during the winter. He's got a house cow system. You couldn't do what we're doing on his farm. It's very, very wet in the winter and very dry in the summer. So maize is the right crop to grow on on that farm. And so he's developed a system on his farm that complements growing maize. So, you know, on a very wet, sort of heavy clay farm in the Blackmore Vale, again, towing a 12-ton milking parlour around every day, you'll be getting stuck up to your axle. So there's, I think it will expand and it can expand. Will it grow a lot? I, I, I just, I couldn't, couldn't tell you and, um, a lot of people told me, well, you couldn't do that on my farm. And it's, it's, it's if you want to, then you, can you almost do anything if you put your mind to it. Um, but definitely, you know, from all the farms we looked at, this was never the goal in 2009 to mobile milk cows around in a field. If we'd found a, a, a farm with a shed on it, you know, we'd be milking cows maybe inside. Um, maybe some inside, some outside. So every farm has its own topography its own advantages and disadvantages. Um, but dry farms, you know, the Salisbury Plains, um, chalk downland, yeah, I can, yes, I can see this expanding, you know. Um, yeah. Yeah, no, it's good. I, I, I guess I'm interested because, yeah, it, 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 like you say, it sort of came about by accident in many ways, albeit there was a lot of work in it, but it seems to have uh, so many advantages. But yeah, I almost wonder whether you would, uh, whether you try and sell it and convince people um, that it's the uh, it's the right thing to do, but you're very, um, you're very good at, uh, I don't know, appreciating all aspects. And I guess, like you say, farming's complex. So. It, it is, and you know, I've got friends throughout the industry with lots of different systems. I'm, yeah. I don't, you know, I want to promote myself, but I don't yeah. want to do it yeah, in, makes sense. in. Yeah, yeah. In no, no, and I'm the same with dis restaurants. Dissing you know, other, other people, yeah, really. I don't, I don't diss the other restaurants. Um, Maybe albeit, I, I think yeah. some of them sell rubbish. Maybe uh, I'm being but, commercially naive. I, I, I don't know, but um, you know, there's there's advantage and disadvantage. You yeah. know, look at my cows on a rainy day, and you know they're sort of like, oh my god, what are we out here for? And right. you look at a cow on a house system on a rainy day, and they're inside, tucked up in a bed, and you know everything's great. But then on a sunny day, the cow inside you'd feel sorry for, and these girls out here you'd be very happy for. So, yeah, there's, there's with every um, you know life has a balancing yeah. effect. Well, it feels it? like some sort of, uh, but I suppose having somewhere warm and snug for a few to go occasionally uh, might be handy. But talking then a little bit more about that that diversification and needing to do other things. So I guess again from the consumer's perspective, they're going to look at it. You know, the, the clues on the t on the on, in the name, the open air dairy. We uh, we see these happy cows. We can all kind of quite simply understand the benefits for the cows at least. And it's interesting to hear uh, about the benefits for the team. So you're starting to create a brand, and you're starting to kind of uh, yeah look at having some products off the back. 
back of that. At the moment, that's just cheese. Is it, can people buy your milk specifically, or is it just the cheese? No, it's, it's, uh, it's consumer yes. by people, obviously. Yes, it's, it's, it's just cheese we're doing at the moment, mainly because our milk goes to a cheese factory, and they've been very kind enough to make our own um, cheese out of just our milk. So yeah, last night, for instance, I, I took the milk down at 11 o'clock last night and offloaded it. So today, they're making a batch of our, our cheese. Do you they know, buy all of your milk? So they buy all of our milk, yeah. Okay. So we produce about 3.2 million litres a year. Okay. Um, I took 15,000 litres down to make a batch of cheese today, which will do probably two tonnes of cheese. Wow, two tonnes. Okay. Um, which is good, but I, th- I think we can probably produce on this farm sort of about 420 to 450 tonnes of cheese. So, you know, it's, if all of your if, milk yeah, went to cheese. Yeah, if all our milk went into cheese. So wow. that's um, that's roughly what we produce. So we sold six tonnes of cheese last year, which sounds a lot, but actually in the grand scheme of things to our businesses, well, it's not it's a lot. If you little. could do 420 tonnes, I suppose. Yes. Is, is there a motivation? I presume cheese is a higher value product than milk, basically. It, it is a higher value product, but there's a cash flow implication. You know, yeah. our cheese matured between 12 and 15 months. Um, so you don't get any money for that, yeah. you know. And you know, with a young, naive business as we are, we need that money for our milk yeah. in to pay them, pay our suppliers, you know, to pay our wages and that side of things. So, um, so, so you could keep moving a proportion there into because I guess yes. I'm, I'm thinking of the vineyards now. I was with Hattingley Wine um, interviewing them uh, a couple of months ago, and it was interesting that there's a number of vineyards that uh, provide the grapes. What they don't have is the wineries to actually convert the grapes into enough yes. wine. And their problem in the supply chain is that there's more, almost more grapes and more wine than there is winemakers. Could you get the same thing uh, in cheese? I suppose it sounds great if you because uh, you wouldn't start making your own cheese. You would always outsource that, would you? I well, I suppose well, never say never. Well, the Barber family, one of the best, be, best in the world at making cheese. You know, they've yeah. won awards. And now vodka um, as well, I think, aren't they linked with Jason? Yes, uh, yes. Black Cow. Yeah. yeah, Black Cow vodka. Yeah, Jason's a relation of the of the That's right. of yeah. the guys. Well, he's been on the podcast as well. Um, so, you know, if I was to start making cheese, I'm going to make a lot of mistakes. So, actually, if you've got someone that's probably the world's best at making cheese yeah. or cheddar cheese, for instance. Um, then actually a good partnership with them is actually we're giving them a really high quality milk to make to go into their cheese brands and in in turn they're letting us make a little bit of cheese as well um you know to play with you know locally and um you know that's you know we've you know we've got a lot of interest in, in what in what we're doing and and it's nice to see how that will evolve you know it might go nowhere it might go somewhere it's like my dog, um, right? There's, I've got a dog, Jasper, who does this, who's rubbing against my leg to get attention, but slightly uh, trickier on a cow. So um, if you find yourself in a cow, where is it? It's their ears they like having. Yeah. Uh, um, strokes, ears are under the chin, so just um, that little okay. bit there between the ears. Okay, that's his, he's in his uh, happy bum. I'm how to describe that. There's like a little it's a lump, yeah. a, a lump on the top of your head, a uh, stroke behind that, and then if you do find yourself stood by a Land Rover in a field with a cow uh, rubbing you very enthusiastically, they've all just decided to uh, leave the field so where are they heading now the next bit of grass there might be another bit of grass um i can't someone has probably come in and they've they think well something's more interesting is going on that's probably an indication that we're getting to the end do you think they've listened and gone right i get the gist uh he's making cheese uh they should wrap up which we will do very soon i don't think we should be offended by the fact they've all just decided uh to uh to stop listening so um I think you, 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 you've answered this. Is a, you know your advice, I suppose, to anybody 
certainly on a bigger scale. I guess what, what was interesting about your story is that you you knew farming, you'd come from farming, they went through some, some, some sort of family challenges that left you in a place where you needed to nigh on start from scratch. Um, it always looks from the outsider, it looks like this is an impossible kind of industry to get into, I suppose, agriculture. It just looks like you need loads of land and loads of cash. Is this kind of approach, do you think, going to lead to more people that could? If, 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 they had, if somebody had a craving, uh, and I know there's that kind of cliched thing of, you know, city boy moves out into the, in, into the country and decides to have a pop at this, but is, is this a potential incubator to get people with less cash back into um, farming? Yeah, I, I've definitely. And we've talked to a lot of people who are trying to get into farming. Um, there's been their passion to milk cows, and so the, you know, they've talked to us about you know, big new entrance into farming. The second parlour we've sold has, has gone to Suffolk, you know, to a young couple, I think they're 21, 22, wow. um, who want to get in and start milking cows in an affordable um, situation, I guess. Um, because it's machinery, you can get a finance company to do it. You've actually got something tangible that can be taken back or you can guarantee so you can get finance to do it. The biggest challenge we had was getting bank support you know, banks will lend money against a farm if you own it. But if you haven't got any security, it's very hard to then borrow money from the bank, which is obviously my business partner, Neil, with his accountancy background. We struggled to get any borrowings at all when we started. I think we interviewed uh, four banks of which one was going to get our business, and they all turned us down by, by the bank that we had our current account with. Um, and so they supported us. But what we've done is we've set good business plans out. We've under-promised and overachieved. you know, every sort of six months when we've had a review, um, and that has given them confidence. So, you know, we started off talking to them in 2009, you know, they were starting to give us lending by 2012, because actually we'd said and done what we were trying to do, we we're growing value in the stock. And, you know, they've supported us wholeheartedly now, and we've built that rapport up. So, someone coming in, you know, capital, I think, can be your your biggest sort of challenge but also it can be your least biggest challenge and it's a mentality of right how can i do it you know what other ways are there we can do we can you can hire things you don't have to buy everything um we leased the first hundred cows in 2011 we got in calf we actually leased them to another farmer um that had never been done in this country to my knowledge before we did that so actually leasing someone's cows is another way of doing it. so you pay as you go right amazing um and these are the things we've had to do you know thinking outside the box um, and, um, you know, it's, I guess what we've been complimented on, you know, a number of times, actually, I remember it sticks with me now, Adam Henson came out with Country File a couple of years ago and, you know, talking off camera, um, he said, well, we've had to think outside the box and he said, what? Thinking outside the box? You said he ripped the box off and thrown it away. Yeah. And I guess we normalize 800 cows in a field being milked over a trailer. It's what I've done for the last eight years. But still, professional farms that turn up yesterday to come and have a look around were blown away with what they saw. And it's become normal to us, but it still is very abnormal, really, to, to farmers themselves, let alone, you know, the public. Yeah, amazing. And, um, Which is remarkable. In the, I guess, you know, I don't know if you go back, I don't know how far do you have to go back. How long have we been uh, herding cows and making milk on a commercial level? Is it a couple hundred years? Is it, yes, is it I would have thought so, yeah. yeah. And, and would it have been more like this? 
you know, 100 odd years ago? Or was it just done on a much, I suppose it was just a much it's smaller just scale? Smaller just scale, you know, everyone would have had a house cow. Yeah, okay. Guess, so right. It's quite a lot or... smaller, smaller scale, yes. I suppose, isn't it? Yes. A house cow. I think if I go back with one, my wife might look at me yeah. uh, a little bit oddly. Is that something that excites you, though, and interests you, is helping other people get into this uh, into this sector with, without the same uh, traditional history, I suppose, of what was needed in farming? D- definitely. I mean, and, you know, We've, this has been a learning experience for eight years and actually it's amazing how much we have learned and you don't credit yourself with learning and um, we, we've offered now with the two parlors we've made, you know, offered consultancy with that. Not that I feel qualified, but a farmer told me yesterday, as long as you're 50 miles away from home, you're a consultant. Okay. <laughs> yeah, perfect. Yeah. You know everything. Yeah. Um, and we do know a lot about what we're doing here, you know. Um, and so if you can give advice, and and I must say that we've been helped along the way by many different farmers and, and business people that have helped us free of charge. You know, you, you ask a question and generally you get an answer or someone will get back to you with an email. Um, so when people are helping you, if we can then help others, you know, and my phone, my phone numbers, well, my phone switched on 24 hours a day, and, and generally I do, I, I pick it up, and I quite, you know, probably once a week a, a random farmer will phone up and ask a question or ask for a price or do whatever, and you know, I do my best to to answer and help people as I've been helped really? too. Okay, excellent. And you, and because you, you actually make the kit, because you can't go somewhere, This the, the stuff you're using in the fields, you can't just rock up at John Deere or whoever and say, can I have one of those, please? These no, are no, bespoke made. No, no, there's no one making anything. Uh, there's there's a few um, mobile parlors in Europe I've seen sort of on this, in the this skiing fields and that sort of stuff. During the summer, they'll take a milking bale out onto the mountains, which might milk five cows. And I think in Europe, there are a few manufacturers of... of uh, of temporary milking parlors, but nothing to what we're have you, have doing you here. Painted your? Uh, no, we haven't kit. painted it. the the design. It's you know I've effectively I went and measured someone else's milking parlor and stuck it on a trailer. Yeah. yeah. So I've done nothing particularly clever. You've also got to have, if someone did copy you, you've then got to have the financial clout to then take them to court to mm. prove that. Um, and I've we've we, we we looked at painting it and the cost of doing that, but we've always thought that it's it's better to help someone. So if someone says I'd like to do that, well, actually, we can build your parlour. We can tell you how to do it. Hmm. We can help you. So let's help people to do what we're doing rather than actually put barriers up and say, well, you can't do it. And yep. you know, a farmer in Zimbabwe phoned me up and asked me if I'd send plans over. And I said, well, actually, it's a little bit sensitive to sending the plans I've got, but actually, I'll send you a few photos and. We've been on WhatsApp, and he's now built his own parlour in Zimbabwe, and is is doing what we are over there. Um, and so you can help in some ways, albeit yeah, commercially. I couldn't send the plans over there because it was it was probably deemed um, silly or uh, to 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 put your plans on the internet, as yeah. it were. But you still wanted to help, so we helped in in how we could. Yeah. Um, and I've spoken to farms in New Zealand, um, Canada, uh, an Irish farmer who's farming in Germany. You know, and it's, it's almost part of daily life now, sort of fielding phone calls like that and um, 
is what, what I enjoy in the job, really. Yeah, good. Well, that's exciting. Again, you know, from a consumer's perspective, I think the more and more people who can adopt this, the better. Because, uh, yeah, like you said, you know, said when we arrived, being stood here, surrounded by eight hundred cows and sixty bulls or seven hundred and something, uh, could be intimidating. But they are very calm, very relaxed. It's uh, it's a lovely space. So, congratulations on what you've uh, what you've uh, built. If people want to buy the cheese, then so they can't buy the milk, but they want to buy the cheese. Where do they go for that? Do you sell it online, or is it only through local shops? Or? Well, no, we don't sell it on online yet um, again we're, we're such a young business so we've got a website we are now on Instagram albeit I'm <laughs> you don't I'm, take I'm, that I'm, I, I'm, I'm not doing it because I don't even know how to work it but um, we're getting a bit of help with that um, so there are local shops um, in Bridport and Dorchester and there's a few markets in Wimborne and Sturminster Newton I think um, that are selling it, but also we sell to um, two wholesalers, Longmans and Leopard Dairy, and they they are spreading it across the south as far as I know, so as far up as London. Yeah, I think we use so, Longmans. So, yeah. so in 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 your in in your deli or your supplier, you know, just ask if Longmans or Leopard supply, and you should be able to get it into your deli if. If that's okay. the case, and same in the restaurant trade, then there's a potential wholesale yes. route through. Yeah. If uh, Roberts if Food to. Services to right. Dorset, who we also supply them, so it's it's all it's all keeping it local. And again, I'm a farmer who's now suddenly learning how to sell cheese, which yeah, is a how bit, to retail. Yeah, and I've got no training in that either. So. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so it, it's it's fun, and I don't think that will stop you because you didn't know how to you know run an open air dairy eight years no. ago, did you? And now here you are. Well, so that's uh, it. every yeah. day's a school day. Absolutely. I think yeah. uh, my father said, when you know it all, it's time to retire. Yeah. And, um, it never so happens. keep learning every day and, and do something different. Yeah, okay. And what's the website address? I see. I was going to ask you for the Instagram, and I knew you wouldn't know that. But <laughs> well, it's, we, it's all. If you Google open air dairy, so it's, yeah. we generally come up as the first. Perfect. Okay. Well, I'll, uh, when I when I put the podcast up, I'll put the website in the uh, in the show yeah. notes as well. So uh, great. Well, look. Thank you for uh, sparing the time. I think it's fascinating. And uh, yeah, good luck. I'll uh, I'll come back and see you in a few years' time. I reckon you're going to have a range of uh, yeah milks and drinks and cheeses and all sorts going on. But good luck. Okay. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you. So there you have it. You have reached the end of another episode of the Humans of Hospitality podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Please go and visit our website, humansofhospitality.co.uk for the show notes and extra episodes and information. And whilst you're there, don't forget to sign up for our newsletter and to receive free materials all about the humans behind our incredible industry. Lastly, if you could subscribe, rate and review this podcast, you will be massively helping me out and it would be hugely appreciated. Thank you so much. We'll be launching another podcast in just seven days time. Cheers. Cheers.